theyeshiva.net. I want to dedicate today's shia to the memory of my grandmother in the middle of her shiva. Lubal Tatoibe Basa, the Bezriel Chaim Shalom Baruch, Zechernel of Rachel. There is an argument between Rashi and the Ramban, who are two of the great biblical commentators, concerning one of the discussions in Parshas Truma. The argument is a very uh, interesting one. And it has uh, various ramifications, both on the halachic level, as well as on the psychological and emotional and spiritual level. And it has to do with the Oren, the casket or the box that was built as the primary uh, piece of furniture, the holiest, most sacred piece of furniture in the Mishkan of the Tabernacle, the argument between Rashi and the Ramban revolves that particular item. And the way it comes about is in an interesting way. The Torah tells us in this week's Parsha and Parsha's Truma, Hashem tells Moshe that they should build a Mishkan, a tabernacle. And the first thing he tells them to build is an Oren, a box. And that box was made from acacia wood. It had a particular size. With all the details that the Torah specifies. What should you put into that box? So the Pasuk says in Pasuk Tazayin, into that box, into that casket, you should put in, as ha'edus asher Which means the testimony which I will give you, referring to the Torah, the tablets containing within themselves the Ten Commandments, encompassing all of Torah, that's the testimony, that's the witness, that there is a relationship between Hashem and the Jew. It's like the ksuva, it's like the marriage document that testifies that they're married. The Torah is the document in which Hashem commits Himself to the Jews and conversely. So that's called Eidus, testimony. So into the Oren you should put the Eidus, you should put the Torah two luchos, and the mitzvahs in them. As we know that uh, the luchos, habris, the luchos of the covenant, were placed in the Aaron, which was situated in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Good. Seems clear. Now the Torah continues. You should make a kapiris. A kapiris is a cover for the box. The Aaron was open. It had no roof. It had a floor and had two walls on the side, but it was an open box, which has three walls, but open on the top. So now he says you should make a kapiris. You should make a covering also from pure gold. From pure gold. Not only that, on top of this kapiris, on top of this covering of, of, of gold, you had to build shnaim kruvim, two what we call cherubs. They weren't built separately and then placed on this covering. Miksha, they had to be made from one piece, which means the gold of the kapiris was hammered out until part of it was elevated into a, into two kruvim, two cherubs on both sides of the kapiris, on one side and on the other side. The Torah says the kruvim should have wings that are soaring upwards. 
The wings should be spread out upwards on top of the kapayrus. The kruvim should also have a face. The two faces should be facing each other on top of the kapayrus, on top of the covering. Then the pasuk continues. Take the kapayrus and put it on top of the aron. In other words, to cover the aron. And then the Torah says, and in the aron you should put the testimony that I will give you. This is in Pasuk Chafalov. But that was already said in Pasuk Tesvav. Already in Pasuk Tesvav, as I quoted before, he said, in the Aaron you should put the Eidus, the Luchas. Here, after he does, speaks about the Kapiris and putting the Kapiris on top of the Aaron, the covering of the box over the box, he repeats again, into the Aaron you should put the Luchas. So Rashi says, Lo lama nichpa. I do not know the reason for this redundancy. Why would the Torah feel the need to repeat itself twice? Why would Hashem repeat the same commandment twice? And Rashi comes up with a novel idea. The question would be, when should you put the luchos into the aron? Should you first build an aron? Put over it the kapiris, the covering, so you have a full-fledged aron. Now open up the kapiris and put in the luchos. Or... You should put the luchos in before you ever put in the kapiris. Before you ever put on top, put the kapiris on top. We wouldn't know. So the pasuk tells us a second time into the aron you should put the luchos to teach us that you should put the luchos into the aron when it's still without a kapiris, and only afterwards should you cover it with the kapiris. And that would be the meaning in pasuk kavalaf. You should place the kapiris on top of the aron. But into the Aaron, you should put the Luchas. What do we mean into the Aaron? In other words, when the Aaron is still independent, devoid of a covering, that's when you should put in the Luchas, and only afterwards you should cover it. That's what Rashi says. Which that in itself needs explanation. Rashi Taka explains very nicely the reason for the redundancy. If it would say only once, put the Aaron, put the Luchas into the Aaron, you would think, after you put the Kapiris on top he says it twice. Put the kapiris. Put in the aron. If you put the luchas, it's coming to teach you. Put it only in the aron when there's no kapiris. Fine. But the question is, why? why? What would be the reason for it? If the reason is pashat, pragmatic, pashat didn't put the covering. So why should you put a covering and then open it up and then put in the luchas? But that seems, what's the big deal? You open it up. It wasn't hard to open up. You just pick it up. It wasn't. Uh, you just have to pick it up. It wasn't. Uh, it was one tefach thick. You weren't dealing with three tons. No, 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 no. Not at all. You just lift it up. Lift it up. It was laying on top, just lying on top of it. It wasn't sealed. Gold, pure gold. Also gold. The the iron was wood. The iron had actually with the iron was wood covered with gold. So Rashi explains what it means covered is that there were actually three ironists, you know, it was three boxes tucked into each other. The middle one was wood. Yeah, gold, wood, gold. So that way the wooden one, that's what Rashi says. So there were actually three boxes tucked into the other. The kapiris was only gold, pure gold, and from there you made the kruvim, which were also pure gold. But the question is fine, Rashi explains what it means, but what's the meaning of this? Why was it? Why was the term makbit that the luchas should be placed into the aron before there was ever a kapiris? What would happen if you had the aron? You 
put the cover, and then you lift up the cover and you put in the luchas. So you have a full-fledged piece of furniture. There has to be some apsatech in here. It's a reason which Rashi doesn't explain. That's number one. Rashi, as you know, is the most fundamental and basic commentator on Chumash. Rashi, whose name was Rabbi Shlemi Yitzchaki, who lived in the 11th century in uh, Germany and primarily in France, and wrote a commentary on Chumash. So his commentary is considered Pshutish Shalmikra, as he writes many times. In other words, his focus, his mission statement, is to explain Pshutish Shalmikra, the literal meaning of the Pesukah. There's another great commentator on Chumash whose name is the Ramban. The Ramban, who's known in English as Nachmanides, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, lived later than Rashi. He lived in the 13th century in Spain, Rabbi of Barcelona, until he made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael towards the end of his life, where he passed away. The Ramban argues with Rashi. The Ramban says that Rashi's basic foundation upon which he builds his Chiddush is erroneous. What did Rashi say? The reason the Torah says a second time place the Luchas into the Aroin, even though it said it once in Pasuk Tesvav. Why did the Torah repeat it in Pasuk Chafalaf is to teach us that you should put it into the Aroin before you place the Kapayus over it. Comes the Ramban and says there's no basis for it. Because when you use the word Arayin, it includes the Kapairas. In the terminology of Tari, he says, when you use the word Arayin, it includes everything on top of the Arayin too. It includes the Kapairas too. So when the Tari says, place the Luchas into the Arayin, it means into the whole Arayin, the Kapairas too. So that's why he says, Rashi's foundation is erroneous. Arayin is called, with the Kapairas, it's called Arayin. So therefore, the Ramban disagrees with Rashi's Chiddush, that the Torah means you should place the Luchos into the Aron without the Kapiris, because it says place it in the Aron twice. Aron means also with the Kapiris. The whole vessel is called Aron. So how does the Ramban explain the redundancy? We'll see in a moment. But here we immediately see a great argument between Rashi and the Ramban. According to Rashi, what is Aron? The Aron itself without the Kapiris, that is Aron. And therefore, when the Torah says, place the Luchas into the Aroin, and says it twice, it means in the Aroin on its own, before you put the Kapairas over it. According to the Ramban, the name Aroin encompasses everything that's connected to the Aroin, including the covering over it. So therefore, when the Torah says, place the Luchas in the Aroin, it cannot mean before the Kapairas was placed on it, because Aroin encompasses the word Kapairas. So the question here comes again, what would be the logic behind this argument? That according to him, Arayin would be exclusively the box, and according to him, Arayin would be more encompassing and include also the covering over the box. What would be the logic of this? Now, the argument between Rashi and the Ramban is not just a technical one. What the name Arayin means, it also has halachic ramifications. For example, for example, there's a prohibition in Torah for anybody to build a perfect model of any furniture in the Mishkan or in the Beis HaMikdash. For example, a Menorah. If you want to build the exact same Menorah, like in the Beis HaMikdash or the Mishkan, it's forbidden. 
The same is true with the other vessels. Now, what about if you, do, if you build the Aaron? If in your home you build a model of the Aaron, a perfect model of the way, just the Aaron itself, did you transgress a sin or not? Here's an argument between Ashi and the Ramban. According to the Ramban, the name Aaron is only once it has the Kapiris. So if you didn't have the Kapiris, it's like you built a menorah with eight branches instead of seven lamps. It's not a problem. Because you didn't do it the way it is. So if you build the Aaron without the Kapiris, it's like still missing a piece. Because according to the Ramban, we remember the definition of Aaron is when is it an Aaron? Only with the Kapiris. And that's what the Torah means, Aaron. It's like just different pieces of one piece of one piece of furniture. So if you only build an Aaron, you didn't transgress it. That's only if the Kapiris is considered part and parcel of the Aaron itself. But according to Rashi, that the Aaron was one entity and the Kapiris was another entity. And when the Torah says place the Luches into the Aaron, it means the Aaron without the Kapiris actually. So then it's very logical to assume that according to Rashi, the prohibition is valid even if somebody builds only an Aaron or somebody builds only a Kapiris. That's the second difference. According to the Ramban, if you only build a covering without an Aaron, did you do a transgression? According to Ramban, no. According to Rashi, if you build Kapiris and Kruvim separately, that itself is also a transgression. So here we have a very serious halachic ramification. And there's another one. When they built the Mishkan of the Beis Hamikdash, each vessel had to be built Lishma. Because it says, V'asu li Mikdash. You have to make it for me. You can't just make it randomly, go to a store, a guy happened to make it and say, let me use it. It has to be built li, lishmi Rashi says. It has to be built lishma. In other words, during the construction of each vessel and piece of furniture, the builder, the blacksmith, the goldsmith had to have, be, have kavana, had to have intention that he's building it lishma for the sake of the Beis HaMikdash. And it had to be a specific lishma. You can't just say, I'm building this vessel for the Beis HaMikdash. When they were building the menorah, the thought had to be, I'm building it for the menorah, as part of, as for the menorah. And the same is true with everything else. The different vessels that the table had, I'm building it for the vessel. According to Rashi, when they were building the kapiris, what was the lishma? The lishma is, I want to build a kapiris. According to the Ramban, when they were building the kapiris, the lishma was, I want to build the aron. Because that's what it is, it's part of the aron. So here we have the halachic ramifications between the Rambam and the Ramban. Now, there's another major argument between the Rambam and the Ramban. But I'm sorry, between uh, I see, between Rashi and the Ramban, but another issue, and that is, what did the Kruvim look like? What did the two cherubs look like? We know that they had wings, and we know that the wings were spread out. We know that they had faces. The Torah says they had faces, and the faces gazed at each other. But what type of faces were they? What type of faces were they? The Torah doesn't say. It says, Pnehem What did the faces look like? Were they faces of people? Were they faces of animals? Were they faces of men? Were they faces of women? Were they uh, not human faces? So there's an argument between Rashi and the Ramban. Rashi Tainas, what were the Kruvim? He says, the mus parts of Tinoik. The Kruvim were faces of children. That's what he says. The mus parts of Tinoik lahem. They had an image, a visage, a face of children. 
So you had one child's face, another child's face, and the two faces were looking at each other. Rashi. And they had the wings. That's what Rashi says. Kruvim is children. The Ramban says not that way. The Ramban says that these Kruvim essentially were reminders of the Merkava, of the chariot that Yecheskel Hanavi saw. One of the great prophets of Israel was Ezekiel, Yecheskel Hanavi, who saw a whole image known as Maisim Merkava, which means the chariots that were carrying the Kisei HaKavit, the throne of glory. And that's why they had these wings going up, demonstrating that they were actually holding up the throne of, of glory. So the faces were a replica of the Merkava of, uh, of Yecheskel. Now, if you go to the Merkava of Yecheskel, you didn't have children's faces. You had different faces. There was the face of a human being, of an adult. There was the face of an eagle. There was the face of a uh, lion. And there was the face of an ox. Now, it may be that here they use the face of a human being. The Ramban doesn't say clearly. But there was no source that it was a child's face because it was a replica of Yecheskel's spiritual Merkava. So according to the Rashi, we have a child's face. And according to the Ramban, we have an adult's face. Although the Torah doesn't specify. What, again, would be the logic behind this argument? Now let's see how both of these arguments that we have been discussing are really the same argument, or they're dependent upon each other. Why? The Kruvim were part of the Kapiris. So the same argument that Rashi and Ramban have about the Kapiris, they also have about the Kruvim. According to Rashi, the Kruvim are not connected to the Orin. They just happen to be on top of the Orin, but the Orin is an independent vessel, and on top of it you had a covering, with two cherubs. However, according to the Ramban, that the Oren, the name Oren includes also the Kruvim and the Kapiris. It includes the Kapiris, so it includes the Kruvim also. So the same argument they had about the Kapiris, they also have about the Kruvim. According to Rashi, the Kruvim are independent of the Oren. And according to the Ramban, they're not independent of the Oren. They make up one entity together with the Oren. The Oren encompasses also the covering on it and the Kruvim on it. According to this, we can understand why, according to Rashi, it's the image of a child, while according to the Ramban, it's the image of an adult. So, of course, the question is, what is the meaning behind all of this? So, in one of his Sikhs on Parshish Truma, on the Fabrengen of Parshish Truma, Tavshin Mamal of 1981, already published in Lakuti Sikhs in Chelek Chavav, Lakuti Sikhs, volume 26. The Rebbe addressed then the argument and the te- debate between Rashi and the Ramban and how to understand this sugya, how to understand this theme. And some points of what the Rebbe said, I'm going to review here today with some elaboration. What essentially was the task of the Oroin? The Oroin is a box, a container to the Luchos. In other words, it was the home of Torah. It was the abode, the dira, the house that housed the Torah. The two luchas encompass within themselves all of the Torah. Saras Adibris have two, 620 letters 
Tafresh Chaf Isis, corresponding to the 613 biblical mitzvahs and the seven rabbinic mitzvahs. Aseris Adibris are the generic mitzvahs that encompass all other mitzvahs of Torah. So the Luchais Habris, essential, are the testimony of the covenant between Hashem and the Jewish people articulated in the Torah like the marriage contract, and that is in the Aaron. So what essentially is the task of the Aaron? As the Torah says, this is the home for the Edus. This is the place where the Luchis are, it's the home of Torah. That's what it's about. The home of Torah. But there's something else that happened by the Aaron. It's not only they put there the Luchis and it stayed there. There was something else. Ah, huh? Okay, that's a detail. Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm going to meet you there. And I will speak to you there. I'm going to speak to you from on top of the kapoiris, between the two kruvim. That's where the divine sound reverberated from. Not from the Aaron. Not from within the box where the Torah was, where the Luchas were. Not even from on top of the box itself. But rather on top of the Kapairas, from the space. The two Kruvim were like this. Two wings. From the space between the two Kruvim, under, under the wings. Above the face. The wings were like this. From that space between the two Kruvim here. That's where the voice of God traveled to Moshe Rabbeinu. So we have two things. One, number one, we have an Aaron which houses Luchas and they remain there. That's the holiest item in the world. It's the Luchas that Hashem gave Moshe Rabbeinu. And that remains there. And that's the testimony that there's a relationship between God and Israel. And then the second thing happened. A dynamic was happening. That whenever Hashem wanted to communicate something to Moshe Rabbeinu after the Mishkan was built, the voice reverberated from on top of the Kapoiris between the two Kruvim and that's where Moshe heard it from. As Rashi explains, that Moshe would go into the Mishkan and he would hear the voice. One second, he would hear the voice. And then he would communicate it to the Jewish people. So here we have the difference between the Ramban and Rashi, and a very interesting difference. According to the Ramban, the communication of Hashem to the Jew, the ongoing relationship between Hashem and the Jew, is defined exclusively based on the Aaron. In other words, the Kapairus and the Keruvim have no identity outside of the Aaron. It's all part of the Aaron. In other words, it's all part of Torah. The exclusive relationship between Hashem and the Jew occurs and transpires continuously and exclusively through Torah, through the Luchas. So the center, exclusive, focal point here is the Aaron. The Aaron includes Luchas. The Aaron includes a Kapairis. The Aaron includes Kruvim. But they're all part of the Aaron. They're all part of Torah. Hashem's voice reverberating to the Jewish people is Torah. And it's a continuum of Torah. And it's exclusively based on Torah. And that's, the, that's all there is to it. Because Torah is the nucleus. It's the spine. And it's the focal point, And essentially the essence and axis upon which the entire relationship between the Jew and the God revolves. Or, as the Kabbalah puts it, Jews are nodded to the Torah, and the Torah is nodded to Hashem. In other words, Zoya says, Yisrael, Meskashron, Bairaisa, Bairaisa, 
So in like a chain, I hold your hand, then you hold somebody else's hand, so I'm connected to that somebody else as well. So I hold the hands of Torah, so to speak, I'm connected to Torah, and Torah is connected to Hashem, so I can become connected to Hashem. This is the perspective of the Ramban, and therefore the Ramban believes that the Kapairas and the Kruvim have no separate identity. Their identity is only an extension of the Aroin because the center point of the Mishkan is the place where the Shekhinah dwells, which is in the Aroin, through the Luchais. By placing the Luchais into the Aroin, that's how you have there the place of the Shekhinah, because that's Torah. And in Torah you have God. So it's not just that the Aroin is a vessel for the Torah, even the Kapairas and the Kruvim which is the place to which Hashem speaks, essentially what they are, they are essentially a vessel, a covering just for the Luchas. It's not like the box was for the Luchas, and then on top of the box there were other things for other... Ramban says, no, there's one center point, and that's the Luchas. The Luchas have a box, the Luchas have on it also a covering, they have also in it a large image of Kruvim, but it's all for the Luchas, it's all to serve Torah, and that's why... That's where the Shekhinah is, because the Torah is, and that's why the Shekhinah speaks there, because they are essentially there for the Torah, hovering over the Torah. One unit, exclusive unit. Rashi yet, Rashi believes there's two dynamics going on. The Arain is for the Torah. And only for the Torah. The Kapiris and the Kruvim have a separate function. That in that space, Hashem communicates to the Jewish people. It's two separate things. Now, according to this, we understand very geschmack why according to the Ramban there's a redundancy. To bring out this point, Torah first says build an Aaron. In the Aaron you should put the Luchas. Then Torah says build a Kapiris. On top of the Kapiris you should build Kruvim. And the Torah finishes, and in the Aron you should put the Luchas. According to the Ramban, the Aron here means, with the Kapiris and the Kruvim, to explain to you that the function of all of it is just for the Luchas. According to Rashi, yet you have to learn it differently, Rashi says. The Torah first speaks about the Aron. And then the Torah says, put into the Aron the Luchas. And that finishes it. And now there's a new thing. I want you to make a Kapiris, it's not part of the Aron. It's going to be on top of it, but it's not part of it qualitatively, in content. On the Kapiris, from the Kapiris, you should build Kruvim. Place it on the Aron. And in the Aron, you should put the Luchas, right? It's only in the Aron itself before there's a Kapiris. Why? I asked in the beginning, what would be the logic to put the Luchas before there's a Kapiris? To emphasize this point. If you would place the Luchas into the box after the Kapiris was on it, it would seem that the reason you're putting in the Luchas here, because all of it is a home for the Luchas. You pick it up. How do you take out Shalant on Shabbos? You pick it up. You pick it up. You first build it, you set it up, and then you put it in the luchas. Like most people do. They first complete the furniture, they put on all the covering, then you put in the cutlery, right? Rashi says, no. If there would be that, it would be the case, you would think that all of it is a house for the Arab. So therefore the Torah says, no, you put in the you put in the Luchas into the Aaron only when there's an Aaron itself. Because that is the house of the Luchas. Now you're finished. 
And now you do the next stages, which are the kapoyles and the kruhum, which are independent. But now we still have to understand what is exactly these two types of... No, you need it to tell you that you should put the luchas in before the kapoyres. If not, you would think, I put everything there. No, because if we would just say once, you would think, put it into the aron whenever you want. In fact, it says twice, it means aron, aron, only aron. You understand? Huh? Right, right, right. First, according to the Ramban, the redundancy is exactly the opposite. To tell you that that uh, that the luchas, that the kaparis and the kruvim are all part of it. It's like cooking. When you put the cover of the pot, you boil the water first, and you open it with the vegetables, or you put the vegetables inside. You're for the Ramban, okay? You can vote. I don't know if he's running yesterday, but you can vote for What's the explanation? So here, we come to explore the difference of the Kruvim with children or adults. And this will explain the whole Indian. There's a Pasuk that says, a famous Pasuk in Isaiah, Hishaya, Ki na'a Yisrael Ki na'a Yisrael Israel, the Jewish people, are a young lad, a little uh, a lad. Vayaveyu, when I love him. So the Mefarshim says, the Medrash says, that Hashem is saying that I love them like I lo- like a nar, because they're like a little bait, like little children. And naturally, there is a special affection to little children, to young children. I love the Jewish people because they're like a nar. Isaiah 11. So the question is, a parent loves their young children, but a parent also loves their grown-up children. And it's not like one says that once they hit 11 years old, or 12 years old, or 16 years old, you stop loving them. Or when they get married, and when they become independent, so you stop loving them. If it's a uh, normal, healthy, functional parent who's in touch with what it means to be a parent and have a child, so the love is eternal, it's timeless. In fact, the love between a parent and a child is called an ava atzmis in chesedus, which means an essential love. Not a conditional love, it's not based on any conditions, it's essential. And therefore it's timeless. Because they're actually one essence with the parent. So why does the Pasuk emphasize that Israel is a young child and therefore I love him? So Chassidus explains the difference is this. An adult child, an adult child, an adult, if they hopefully developed and became their own person and they have lovely qualities and they're doing good things and they're good people, so one could love them not only because... They're a child, because they're cute. They may not be cute anymore, but rather because of who they are as independent people. In other words, good parents-children relationship operate on two levels. 
when they're young and they're cute and they're adorable and they're dependent. So you love them on that level. When they grow up, if the only thing you see in your 30-year-old son is that he's cute and you want to pinch his cheeks, or uh, a girl, you'll see they're not going to like that because they already have a personality. So they expect, and they justifiably expect, that you relate to them not only based as a parent who once had them in their womb, but also as an independent human being with whom you can develop a shtickle friendship. A, a close relationship as, as, I wouldn't say totally peers, you're not the same age, but also as close friends. And you know, sometimes parents and children, when they get older, when the children get older, if the relationship was only based on the dependence, so, so there's some, and not on, not on a genuine respect for the other person's personality, when they're adults, they can grow apart. The love may still be there, but it's not so manifested because the second element was not developed, namely a friendship between one person and another person, respecting each other's presence as individual minds with individual hearts. So when a child grows older, we have the ability to love them and respect them because of who they became, because of who they are. We appreciate their, their personality, we appreciate their midas, we appreciate their wisdom, we appreciate their uh, various characteristics and qualities. When we love our young children, it's not because... We appreciate their personality necessarily. Well, sometimes young children have very big personalities. That's also the case. But it's not about that. It's an essential, unconditional love. So although an adult child is also loved by parents, but the love towards the personality of the child eclipses the essential, transcendent love. And that's why we see that the love to young children is much more manifested. It's much more exposed and it's much more revealed than the love to older. Because with older children, the love has a mixture of two components. One is the essential love and one is the love because of their qualities, which is not essential. And they're mixed. And the love because of their qualities eclipses the essential love. With children... You only have the Ava Atzmas, the essential love, not because of their qualities, may even be a baby without any developed qualities in a manifested way. So you have only the essential love, which is always more powerful. That's the reason we sometimes see that the deepest love of some parents to children is manifested precisely in children where there's no reciprocity. Sometimes the children have challenges, they're not giving back anything to the parents. So here there should be this least reason to love because we love people because we get something from them. And here they're not getting anything from them. And here you sometimes see the deepest love. Why? Because there's nothing to cover up on the essential love from essence to essence. In a child who is developing regularly and therefore reciprocates time appropriately. So then the essential love is mixed in also with a love that you appreciate because you're getting so much back. You're getting back love. You're getting back... Uh, huh? You're getting back everything, the nachas that you get from children, raising them with all the hardships, tremendous joy. If Khalila there's a situation where there's no reciprocity or very little reciprocity, it doesn't take away the love. Sometimes the love is even more emphasized. So Chassidus explains a very, 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 very fine idea. 
because there's nothing to block the essential love. So we love people for two reasons. We can love people because of who they are, because of what type of people they are. That's regular friendship in the world. I enjoy you because you give this and this and this and this to me, and that's really what you give me. And then there's the essential of I don't love you because of what you give me. I love you because of you, essentially, and that can change. Because it's not about what you own or what you possess or what you display. It's about your essence. That doesn't change. Those loves are very, very rare in the world. Very rare in the world. Because they're unconditional. It's a love between parents and children. But when children are growing up, this level is eclipsed by the second love which covers over it. Which is also a very good love. When children are even uh, totally developed and reciprocate, it's also a little bit eclipsed. Although it's more than with adults. But when children don't even reciprocate here, the deepest relationship often emerges because there's nothing absolutely to block the essential love. Yet even regular children who are reciprocating, this level of love is usually revealed much more than with adults because as much as their personalities are developed, you can't really relate to them as peers, you can't relate to them as peers. And there's this essential love a mother or father have to a child. This... These two levels of love are also true in the relationship between Hashem and the Jew. A father and a child, or a mother and a child. If you want to talk about the Shekhinah, it's a mother. If you want to talk about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's a father. There is the relationship between Hashem and the Jew that is based on the achievements, on the characteristics, on the personality of the Jew. And that's the relationship that is built, communicated, and... Uh, evolves through Torah. Basically, what is just like a good friend. What makes you a good friend of mine or an individual a good friend of mine? There are elements of his personality that make me feel close to him or her. Very appealing. It may be the intelligence of this person. It may be the heart of this person. It may be a combination. It may be the humor of this person. The fun, the, the, the fun loving of this person. The, the depth the honesty, the straightforwardness. Every person has their miles and their virtues that attract their friends to them. Their organization, their uh, their humor. I mean, I don't know, everyone understands this. So it's something that speaks to me in you. And therefore, I want to spend time with you. I don't want to spend time with somebody else. Because there's something in this person that I benefit tremendously from. I enjoy it, I appreciate it, it's helpful for me. It's your kindness, your grace, your, grace, your purity, whatever it is. Your innocence. So you speak about the relationship between Hashem and the Jew on this level. It's just something in the Jew, (coughs) in the Jew's life and in the Jew's daily conduct that is very appealing to God. In other words, is very similar to God. And that comes through Teda. Because Teda is divine. And Hashem communicates that Teda to the Jewish people. So He communicates divinity to the Jewish people. When they incorporate Teda, when they uh, study Teda, when they live by Teda, when their whole life is Teda, so they become divine-like. So that creates, so to speak, a partnership or a friendship between them and the Rabbi Nishalim. That's one level of the relationship. And this is the Ramban's understanding of it. And that's why according to the Ramban, the Kruvim had the face of the Merkava. It was a replica of the Merkava and Dafka of adults. Of the Merkava. And the Merkava was those who carry the throne of glory, and that was expressed also here, Lamata, in the Kruvim, on the Kapiris, in the Aaron, which were all one element, one essence. And that is a house to the Luchas, to the Torah. 
and Hashem's communicating to them through them was because of the Torah that they housed. So essentially, it's all back to the Ark. Rashi's perspective, however, is another perspective. Rashi says truth is the relationship created through Torah, and that's the Ark. And that's the holiest element in the Mishkan, and that's why the Luchas are there. But Rashi also says there's another relationship, and that's expressed through the Kruvim, which had faces of children, not faces of adults. Children are not even obligated to keep Torah. There's an obligation on the parents to be mechanach the children. But that's an obligation on the parents. Children are not obli- obligated to keep Torah. So what's the significance of having the face of Kruvim children? And through this face, God communicates His mitzvahs. Through the children. Why the children? What Rashi is conveying here is that there is a level of relationship, there is a level of love that even transcends Torah. And this is indicated in a very interesting way in the Zayah. The Zayah says that there are three knots that are connected to each other. Yisrael is connected to Teda, and Teda is connected to Hashem. So everybody learns. So you have three things connected. So Chassidus asks the question, you have three things connected, but you don't have three knots. You only have two knots. There's one knot between the Jew and Teda, and one between the Teda and Hashem. In Zayyarit says, Tlas Kishin Miskashran Dabidan. Three knots connect. So Chsidis comes and says it's a triangle. This Taka Yisrael, not to Torah, and Torah, not to Kuchibrichel. But then there's another knot in the reverse way, like a triangle, where Hashem connects back to Yisrael independent of Torah. In other words, there's a relationship between the Jew and Hashem. That even is be that is beyond and transcends the relationship through Torah. What does this mean? It means, of course, for the relationship between Hashem and the Jew to be truly complete and manifested and realized, one has to have Torah. But the relationship is also an essential one, like parents to children, that they're absolutely one thing, independent of the children's behavior, and independent of the children are even reciprocating. To only have that level in life could be challenging. I mean, if your children grow up as adults and your only relationship to them is as they were four-year-olds, it's not a very gishmaka relationship. They're not going to enjoy it. And ultimately, you're not going to enjoy it. And it's one of the challenges parents really have. I mean, uh, in many ways, psychologically, you can say that a mother, or maybe a Jewish mother or a mother b'chalal, even when they look at their 55-year-old son, what they're seeing is somebody in their womb. That's what they're seeing. Technically, he happens to have a job. Technically, he has 13 children. Technically, he's a Zayda. True, he has a house. He may even be a multimillionaire. That's just all technical mistakes that happen along the way. You don't know when and how. It's your husband's fault. But essentially, you look at him. You know what he is. Who is he? He's a little, little oifala. A little, little malachal. A little, little... A little, little... Uh, shefala or whatever it is, in the mother's womb, or just came out. Okay, now he doesn't eat milk, he drinks milk, he eats steak, shine. <laughs> but that's just technical things, right? Now, there's a truth to that. <laughs> there's a truth to that. That's where he was created, that's where he was conceived, that's where he was created, that's where he was developed, that's where his consciousness was, was formed, that's where his soul was given to him. It's not a small thing. But like the famous story with Al-Tarebbe, Al-Tarebbe was first living by his in-laws, 
they were very wealthy people. He married a, a girl from a wealthy family, and they supported her. And then the Mesnagdim <coughs> informed his father-in-law, his mother-in-law, that he's uh, not good. And they ultimately threw him out of the house. And he had to go live alone. And then when they found out who he really was, he was a big rebbe. His mother-in-law was already a widow, but she had a lot of money. So she offered him to bring over the whole kahila into her place, and she would sponsor it and take care of it. So the rebbe said no. So she said, why? You know how comfortable it was when you were here? So the rebbe said, when a child is in the womb of its mother, it's very, very comfortable. But when it comes out and you say, would you like to go back there? Ah, you were very, very comfortable. You know how good it is? That's true. <laughs> it was like a very good. But they go back. Why? Because it's like a very good. But ultimately, the relationship must evolve and graduate to new levels. So, but that still remains the most powerful level of the relationship. The essential connection that it's one essence, one person. But if it only remains that you don't allow the person to develop himself, herself. So they have to grow up and become their own people. And then you could communicate also hopefully as friends, as separate people, and enjoy each other. Enjoy each other, consult with each other, have fun with each other, engage each other, argue with each other. But as adults, but underlying it, you still have the essential love. And the essential love transcends the love because of personality, because of characteristics, or because of what's reciprocated. So Rashi also says, obviously, that you have the Arain, which is the house of the Torah, which is one element of the relationship, which it ultimately has to evolve to. But the origin of the relationship, the genesis of the relationship, is the child. The child representing a metaphor of the Ava Atmos, of the essential love that's not eclipsed by any other love. And that's why this level of love is revealed precisely by small children. And that's what the Kruvim were trying to represent. So the relationship between the Jew and Hashem is not dependent only on their avodah, revealed avodah in Torah and mitzvahs, but it's rather the Jews, in other words, a piece of the divine, so to speak, parts of it's like the love to a child, which is essential, which transcends any conditions and any times or, or circumstances and so on and so forth. And this is the difference between Ramban and Rashi. The Ramban, Rashi, as I opened the Shia Rashi's Pshat, literal. The Ramban writes in the beginning of his commentary that his commentary is, includes sweet ideas to people who know Kabbalah. The Rambam was a mystic. The Rambam was a great Kabbalist and in many of his commentary he introduces ideas of Kabbalah. Rashi's pshat, literal. When you say literal or simple, simple is not so simple. Being simple is not so simple. Simplicity, the Baal Shem Tev used to say that the simplicity of a simple Jew touches the simplicity of God's essence. Which means, in other words, simplicity, we sometimes use in a negative connotation. Really what simplicity means is the underlying foundation. The simple foundation upon which everything builds. The deepest truths in life are simple. But they're deep. And they're very, very deep. So when you call Rashi Pshutesh Mikra, it doesn't only mean it's simple for simple people. It also means the simple foundation upon which everything is built. So there's no argument between Rashi and the Ramban on the levels of the relationship. It's just each of them explores a different dimension. The Ramban is exploring already a full-fledged, growing-up relationship manifested in adults. Therefore the crew of them are adults. And there the Arayin becomes 
the chief characteristic of the relationship. Torah must be the focal point and nucleus of the Jewish life. Rashi goes, so to speak, to the most basic, sub-sub essence of the relationship, which is also the most simple. It's the foundation of everything. And therefore Rashi explores that in addition to the Aron, there's also the special independent thing we call the Kapiris and the Kruvim, through which Hashem communicated through those children, representing their essential relationship that even transcends Torah, the relationship that comes because the Jew is one with Hashem, which is actually the reason why he gives Torah to them. The reason he gives them the Torah, which is also him, is because of this essential relationship between the Jew and Hashem. And this is also signified in the fact that according to Rashi's perspective, the Kapiris and the Kruvim were on top of the Aaron. According to the Ramban, they were on top of the Aaron like a cover, like a hovering over the Aaron. According to Rashi, they're not only being on top of the Aaron technically, but it also represents that this is a type of relationship that is beyond the relationship of the Aaron. It's a relationship that comes from the Ava Atmis, the essential love. So now you'll ask a question, so why is it on top of the Aaron? It should be somewhere else. Two types of relationships. Yeah, according to the Ramban, I know. It's all the Aaron and it's all part of the Aaron. According to Rashi, why is the Kapiris and the Kruvim a cover for the Aaron? It's basically a covering. The answer is because, and here we come to the punchline, because what is the concept of a covering of a box? To protect what's inside the box. What really protects the Aaron? What really protects the relationship? created through the Aaron, through Torah, it's the Kapiris and the Kruvim. They are the ones who guard and ensure the continuity of the Luchis in Jewish life. Why? Because, just like with parents and children again, we love them essentially as youngsters. When they grow older, we hopefully also begin to love them for who they are as independent people. But with independent people, you can get into fights, with independent people, you can get into very sour arguments. With independent people, you can sometimes get bored of them. You sometimes want to detach from them. So what protects the relationship that's based on independence? What really protects it and preserves it? Always in the backdrop, you have the essential love. And the same is true with the Jews and Torah. What protects the relationship between the Jew and Torah? Notwithstanding challenging circumstances notwithstanding difficult circumstances, notwithstanding situations sometimes where the Jew doesn't want to have a relationship with Taylor. But because of the kapiris, because of the kruvim, that represent that this is who he or she is in their very essence. In other words, like a parent to a child, you can't divorce your parents even if you would like to. There's a certain relationship that is eternal and timeless because you come one from the other. It's etzim to etzim. It's not like two spouses. It's not like spouses whose relationship is novel. It was created later in life and therefore can also come to an end. Here it can't come to an end. So that protects that the conscious, independent, conditional relationship, reciprocal relationship should be healthy. So here too, the essential relationship of the Kapoir is that protects the Luchas. It covers over the Luchas and it ensures that the Jew should remain eternally connected to Torah. And even if the Jew abandons Torah, the essential relationship with Hashem will prompt him or her or motivate him and her or inspire him or her to come back to Torah because this is essentially who they are. 
So even if they abandoned it and they neglected it and they left it and they're alienated from it and therefore, why should they be interested in it? They're totally living a new life. But because of the essential dynamics of who they are, there's something in them that will not give them rest and will not give them full serenity if they don't realign their life with the luchas, which here we come to the final meaning of the word kapairus from the word kapara, which is atonement, not just covering. Because from where can atonement come? In other words, tshuva and atonement, which is after they abandon Taita, they should reconnect to Taita. It's because of the essential relationship that Rashi is conveying, which is manifested through the kapairus and through the kruvim above the kapairus. Right. Now, I'll clarify. The two views of Rashi and the Ramban, I think, could be connected with a fascinating, fascinating story that's brought in the Medrash, in the Sefer Tona Devei Eliyahu. Tona Devei Eliyahu is a Sefer that Chazal tell us was authored by Eliyahu Anavi. In that book, in chapter 14, Perik Yudalit, Eliyahu Anavi tells a story that he met a Jew. And the Jew says to him, Rebbe, there are two things in the world which I love with my entire heart. He says, I'm quoting from memory. Two things that I much love tremendously. But I'm not sure which one precedes which. What are the two things that I love with all my heart? I love Torah and I love Yisrael. I love the Torah and I love the Jewish people. But I don't know what precedes what. So he's asking Elio Anovi to answer this question. Imagine the question. What precedes what? Elio Hanovi gives an extraordinary response. He tells this Jew, he says, The nature, the derech, the path of most people is... To, be, to maintain, to believe that Torah Kadma, that Torah precedes the Jewish people. The Jewish people follow Torah. Vani Oimer Yisrael Kadma. Vani. Un Ichzog. And I say that the Jewish people precede Torah. This Medrash is brought in another few places as well. And in Bereshis Rabbin, the beginning of Medrash Rabbin Bereshis, the famous expression, The thought of the Jewish people precedes everything. Now, understand, Elio Novi says clearly that the derech of most people is to maintain that Torah is Kaidim Yisrael. It's a path, it's a derech, it makes sense. In fact, that's the ordinary path that most people maintain. Elio Novi says, Yisrael what does this mean? What is the argument? What are the two paths? One way of understanding Yiddishkeit is Torah precedes everything. Of course, in order for Torah to be fulfilled, in order for Torah to be implemented, in order for Torah to be actualized, in order for Torah to be revealed, you need the Jewish people. Vayidaber Hashem al Moshalemer, Tzav is Bnei Yisrael, Emer el Bnei Yisrael, Daber el Bnei Yisrael. So for Torah and mitzvahs to be studied, internalized, explained, absorbed, propagated, taught, transmitted, of course you need the Jew. But the Jew is here to ultimately facilitate Torah, to express Torah, to bring out Torah. 
Torah is the beginning, Torah is the nucleus, Torah is the progenitor, Torah is the genesis. And we are here in order to fulfill the Torah, and that is our greatest achievement. That's on one level. Vaniyoy says is a deeper perspective. The deeper perspective is Yisrael Kadmula Torah, which means God loves the Jew absolutely and unconditionally, as the Jew is a chelik elikami mal mamish. It's part of Hashem Himself, as Rashi, Rashi Himself, explains elsewhere in Parshas Kisavoy. He compares the Jewish people. He says to a treasure that the king appreciates just by having, just having my child without anything else. That itself brings. Endless pleasure and delight to his father. The Jew's relationship with God is infinite, it's absolute, it's unequivocal, it's unconditional, and nothing, nothing, nothing can damage it. In order to be able to experience that relationship fully, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, Hashem gives the Jewish people the gift of Torah. But what comes first? What comes first is the Jew. So that's why the whole Torah speaks about Daber el Bnei Yisrael, Tzavaz Bnei Yisrael. If there's no Jew, there can't be Torah. In other words, the whole Torah is in order to bring out who the Jew is, in order to allow the Jew to experience the ultimate relationship. In many ways, this expresses a difference between Rashi and the Ramban. The Ramban tells us the whole Kapoiris is a din in the Aaron. It's a chalik of the Aaron. Rashi says, no, the Yaren is the Oren, that's Torah. On top of the Yaren, you have the Kapoiris, you have the Kruvim, you have the children, you have that essential relationship, Vani Oymer Yisrael Kadmu. And yet, as I said, that Kapoiris is also on top of the Yaren. Why? So number one, we explained before, because that is what protects the order. What's going to protect the relationship forever? The fact that there's an unconditional connection. That's why the Jew will always come back to Torah. In other words, ultimately, despite everything, there will never be complete disassociation between a Jew and his Judaism because of the Kapiris. What is more, this relationship that's unconditional, that itself is revealed in Torah. It's the Torah that reveals to us the relationship that transcends Torah. That itself is articulated in Torah. In other words, even the Kapiris is part of the Arab. And of course, number three, the ultimate unconditional love can be experienced through Torah. The Jew that has Torah, the Jew that learns Torah, the Jew that lives Torah, the Jew that is in the Aaron can breathe that love, can feel the love, can experience the love, can live that relationship 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And ultimately, of course, Eilu ve'elu divrelekim chayim. There's the view of the Ramban, which has its truth. There's the view of Rashi, which has its truth. Both of the both are the words of the living God. There's a component in which we say the focal point of the Jew is Torah. And there's another component in which we say the relationship is absolute and unconditional. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.